In the epistles of John and Jude, we have examples of two of Jesus' disciples who have recently weathered apostasy crises and are counseling the saints of God in how to overcome the spiritual and moral influences of corrupt leaders in the church. I'm Mark Holt, and this is Gospel Doctrine. Thank you for joining me again for Gospel Doctrine, the podcast where we discuss the Come Follow Me curriculum of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. As always, send your questions to gt at gospeltoctrine.com, and I will respond to them. In this particular case, I'm going to have a special episode before the end of the year where I will take the entire time and talk about your questions and the things that are important to you and address those from the scriptures and my interpretation of the scriptures. If you would like to spread the word about our podcast... You can do so by leaving us a five-star review either on Facebook or on iTunes using your podcast app on your iPhone. And uh, that, will, that will get out there. People will see that this is a highly rated podcast and they'll want to try it out. So the lesson today, we t- we're talking about two of Jesus' disciples, uh, one of whom knew Jesus while he was alive, John, and the other who didn't, or, or who knew Jesus, Judah or Jude, uh, knew Jesus while he was alive but wasn't one of his disciples while he was alive. While Jesus was alive. And so then after Jesus was gone, then Judah, his brother, his half-brother, was converted to the gospel of Jesus and then became one of his disciples. But Jesus appeared to him after his resurrection. And so both of these men have experienced the resurrected Lord. And then they've also been church leaders for decades, years or decades, and are counseling the saints in the, in the congregations that they have stewardship over how to withstand the influences of morally corrupt leaders. And, and it apparently, if you remember when we discussed the, the epistle of Second Thessalonians, we talked about the idea of a great apostasy. And apparently this was a widespread understanding among the church leaders that there was going to be a lot of disruption. Uh, this, originally, this idea originally came from Jesus, by the way. And so we'll talk about uh, what the what the prophecies were that they see that these two men writing these epistles they see being fulfilled, and then we'll talk about what they thought we could do to mitigate the damage. So first, we'll talk about the three epistles of John, and really, it's First John that is most important to us theologically and historically. Now, who wrote the epistles of John? Uh, most scholars agree that the language, the, the type of Greek used, and the words used in the Greek uh, in the epistles of John match very closely the gospel of John. And so whoever that writer was, and they disagree on that, they're, they're probably the same person. Now, uh, the, the author identifies himself as John, but is it John the sub, son of uh, Zebedee, John from Peter, James, and John? Or is it someone else called John the Elder? Uh, and, and that is a person identified in, in two of these epistles. Um, now, they may be the same person, right? It may be that John grew older and became known as John the Elder. But in any case, uh, it seems clear from the Gospel of John that when the writer of this epistle 
refers to one's, one of Jesus' disciples as that disciple whom Jesus loved, he was being humble and perhaps a little bit self-deprecating and not wanting to draw attention to his own glory. And so then he wasn't mentioning his own name. So it was likely, it, it's likely in my mind at least, that John the son of Zebedee was the author of the, uh, the Gospel of John and the Epistles of John. Now we'll discuss the authorship of the book of Revelation in our next episode, but uh, the the same authorship is not necessarily accepted with the book of Re- Revelation as it is with the epistles and the gospel because the Greek is different, uh, the wording is different, the timing is different, the historical tradition is different. Uh, nevertheless, those things aren't necessarily dispositive, but they, they do present an interesting challenge. So we'll discuss that next time. This time, we'll, we'll skip first to Second and Third John. And then we'll discuss 1 John, and then we'll discuss the epistle of Jude. So 2nd and 3rd John are basically John telling these saints, you've, you've just, I've just finished talking to you about a crisis of apostasy, and now I'm going to give you specific guidance. So in the case of 2nd John, he's warning of these apostates that they'll come looking for acceptance. They've been ejected from the church community, possibly an early version of excommunication, and they're going to come asking you to, to validate them, to give their ideas acceptance, to come along with them, and you shouldn't do it. And Third John is a warning spe- to a specific person, to a man named Gaius. And he is telling Gaius, when, when true missionaries come, when they visit, especially messengers from me, John, you should accept them. And it's all the more important that you accept them because you, one of your local leaders, uh, Diotrephes, is not going to accept them. He's bitter against me. John, and he doesn't accept my messages, he doesn't accept my messengers, and therefore I need you to make sure that these messengers receive the acceptance and the, the love that they need and the support that they need. So those are short epistles, and those are kind of the main ideas expressed. So uh, what was First John about that they were referring to? So we'll talk a little bit about this. First of all, it's a letter to a group of Jewish saints, possibly in Ephesus. So it's interesting that Peter was writing to the saints in Asia, John is writing to the saints in Asia, and by Asia what they mean is Asia Minor, present-day Turkey. And Paul spent a lot of his time in, uh, in Asia, in the province of Asia, the Roman province of Asia. So uh, a very, very important center of early Christianity was Turkey. And so we don't know for sure that John was writing to saints in Ephesus, but it seems likely. And uh, they have seen corrupt teachers come about and, and mingle themselves with the flock and not only teach but give examples of things that, they, uh, that were wicked. And therefore, it's interesting because when we get to chapter 2, we'll discuss this, but John saw in this a sign of the last times. Uh, a word that we, that we haven't discussed a whole lot, but it's an important word in the later New Testament, and that word is eschatology. And from the Greek, it, it basically means the study of the last things, the latest things. And not, not meaning the things that are most recent, but the things that are at the end of times or the exit. So the uh, eschatology basically means, in English, it means what are, what are your beliefs about the end of the world? And so John gets into a little bit of his eschatology here, and we'll, we'll discuss more of his eschatology as we look at the book of Revelation. That's entirely the subject of it. But the, the point of 1 John is to mitigate the damage that's been caused by these apostates. Um, and, and the ideas that are expressed 
instead of having a, um, you know, instead of the ideas flowing from one point to the next and then making a central uh, message, it's John reinforcing the ideas around that Jesus taught around life, truth, and love. And they can be mostly found in the Gospel of John. So most scholars take this as evidence that John was writing after he, he was writing these epistles, or this epistle specifically, after he wrote the Gospel of John. Now that's possible, but I don't see any reason why one follows from the other. I see it just as likely that John first was coming coming up with a lot of the ideas that he remembered Jesus teaching, and then later on he wrote the story about how Jesus taught those ideas. So, um, more specifically, almost every idea that we see in the first epistle of John comes from Jesus's Last Supper discourse with his disciples. You remember John 15 is all about, I am the true vine, you are the branches. Uh, and then later on he has this, this great intercessory prayer. He says to them, as I have loved you, love one another. So all of these messages that, John gave, that Jesus gave to his apostles on the night of his Last Supper, we have recorded in the Gospel of John and in no other place. And m- many of these ideas, or let me put it another way, all of the ideas in 1 John come from that, and many of the ideas in, in John, the Gospel of John chapter 13 through 17 um, either have their beginning here or are repeated here, depending on which work you think came first. But to me, it's just as valid an idea to think that the epistle of John came first, and John was putting down his ideas on paper, and then later on he fleshed it out into a full-fledged biography of Jesus, then that first he came up with a biography and then he distilled those ideas into this epistle. I think either of those could be equally likely. But the general scholarly view is that the gospel came first and the epistle came second. So you can choose, you can read up about it on the internet if you like and you can choose what you think. Uh, so in the first chapter we have sort of an introduction the way we have in the first chapter of the gospel of John, which uh, we have an introduction of a lot of the themes that will come. First of all, that the Word was from the beginning. The Word was with the Father, and the Word was God. So you'll remember that from the Gospel of John. But in the first epistle of John, what the form that it takes is to say, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, our hands have handled, of the Word of life. For life was manifested, and we have seen it, and bear witness, and show unto you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested unto us, that which we have seen and heard declare we unto you, that ye also may have fellowship with us. And truly our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ. I, I would recommend that you read the ch- first chapter of First John, and then you read the first chapter of the Gospel of John and compare them. Um, and I'll give you, actually I would recommend also that you read, just read again John chapters 13 through 17 as you read 1 John. And you'll see these ideas echoed back and forth and reinforced and stated slightly differently. So for example, uh, as we get into, so this chapter is, it, it, it compares God to light and the world to darkness. And that, that is a theme very much found in uh, Gospel of John chapter 1. And in chapter 2, uh, G- John describes Jesus as our advocate with the Father, and he talks about how, uh, well, and that's an echoing of the idea from John chapter 14, verse 6, no one, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Um, and in, it, throughout this verse, John is just restating ideas that we see in the gospel or, um, 
or developing ideas that he would later flesh out in the gospel when he says, for example, in verse 15, now we're in 1 John chapter 2, verse 15, love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. So John 15, remember, uh, if, if you had loved the world, they would have loved you. But because you don't, then that's why they persecute you. Uh, when in John chapter 14, verse 7, when Jesus says, If you've seen the Son, who has, whoso has seen the Son has seen the Father also. Uh, here in 1 John chapter 2, verse 23, John says, Whosoever denieth the Son, the same hath not the Father. But he that acknowledgeth, acknowledgeth the Son hath the Father also. So those two verses are very equivalent. Uh, verse 25 this is the promise that, promise that he hath promised us, even eternal life. And uh, just compare John chapter 17, verse 3, if you want to understand more about that. And verse 28 is probably one of the most important verses and very reminiscent of the, the kind of teachings that we find in the Book of Mormon. 1 John chapter 2, verse 28, And now little children abide in him, that when he shall appear we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him, at his coming. Now, you, re- you remember, I believe it was Alma who talked a lot about we shall be our own judges at, at his coming, whether, whether we are found ourselves to be good or evil. Um, so this idea that, that hell is found within our own mind and that we want to have confidence and not be ashamed at his coming, that really we're going to be the ones who decide what sort of eternal status that we end up in because of our choices. And it's not going to be God that says, I I don't like you because you haven't been willing to obey these arbitrary commandments that I've given you. But instead, you now are more comfortable in my presence because you become the person that my commandments have made you into. This is very much an idea that was developed in the Book of Mormon. uh, And John is showing here the beginnings of it. And, and many people understand this. You don't have to be a Latter-day Saint to understand this idea and to believe in, that, in this idea. Now, uh, an idea that, that is a word that is found only in this chapter is the word antichrist. Now, we hear this word a lot and we think, oh my gosh, uh, this must be all over the New Testament. But actually, um, I'm going to read from verse 18. We're still in 1 John chapter 2. Little children, it is the last time Uh, which means the latter days. As you have heard that Antichrist shall come, even now there are there many Antichrists, whereby we know that it is the last time. So this word Antichrist, we we think that there's one Antichrist and that uh, he's, when he appears and he is directly opposed to Jesus Christ, that that is a sign of the latter days. And that idea comes from 1 John. Now here's something interesting. It's obvious from this verse, there are a lot of different interpretations of what John meant by this, but to me, none of them really ring true, except the one that that says that John really did think that he was at the end times. Peter seems to have thought the same thing. Paul seems to have thought the same thing. That when when they saw, uh, you remember in Thessalonians, as we mentioned before, don't think that uh, the second coming is near because there needs to come a, follow, a falling away first and that man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition. So Paul did think that there was one figure who would embody an enmity towards the Messiah. And John seems to think the same thing. You have heard that Antichrist shall come. Even now are there many Antichrists. So this, 
this verse can be translated in a number of ways, and you'll find it if you look at BibleHub.com. If you look at this verse and all the different translations, sometimes it's translated as Antichrist, and sometimes it's translated as an enemy to Christ. Uh, it seems more likely that John and P- Paul had their had the same idea that there's one person that and that the the enmity to Christ, although it would be found widespread in the latter days, it would eventually be centered in one central figure who was more powerful and more evil than all the rest, and that when that person came, that would be a sign of the, the imminence of the return of Jesus Christ in glory. Isn't it interesting? Now, Jesus promised this, but this, is a challenge, this has challenged the faith of a great number of people, including modern-day Christians, uh, mainstream Christians, that John here, and I don't think it's deniable, in my personal opinion, uh, which is not one of the great opinions of great expertise in the Christian world, but it is my personal opinion that I don't think it's really deniable that John thought he was within uh, within his lifetime or within a few years of the second coming of Jesus Christ. And he's giving as proof that they know everybody that he's writing to, they all know uh, a person who would fit this description, the man of sin, as Paul called him, or the son of perdition, or as John called him, the Antichrist. They they knew they probably knew who he was talking about, and John obviously knew he was talk who he was talking about. And so the fact that he doesn't name this person uh, doesn't mean they didn't understand. They didn't all have an understanding of who it was. And there was one person who was truly uh, an enemy to Christ, and 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 the harsher and the the stronger. The resistance gets to believing in Jesus Christ, the more a sign it is that they're in the latter days. And, and that's very interesting. So Jesus did foresee, he did foretell that nobody knows the time of his coming, not even the angels in heaven, right? Not, well, so it's, it, that's knowledge that's reserved for the Father. And so Paul it, is proving this, that he just didn't know when the second coming is. Um. So let's go, anyway, that's an interesting discussion of chapter 2. Let's go on to chapter uh, 3. In verse 2, we have something that, that really, this, this should set off uh, a ton of uh, symbolism and parallels in your, in your mind because uh, it's, it's almost directly quoted in the book of Moroni. And that should also raise some questions in your mind. We'll discuss them a little bit. Uh, so chapter 3, every man, let's, let's actually read starting in verse 1, chapter 3. Behold, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us. So he's talking about charity, the love the Father gives to us. That we should be called the sons of God, therefore the world knoweth, knoweth us not, because it knew him not. Beloved, now we are the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is, and every man that hath this hope in him purifieth himself, even as he is pure. Now, it's very interesting that, uh, that Moroni would have almost directly quoted this verse from 1 John. Uh, now, remember, Lehi and his family left Jerusalem 600 years before the birth of Christ, and then John wrote several decades after the birth of Christ. So this is almost 700 years later. Moroni is on a different part of the world. There's no uh, congress between the two of them. There's no communication. And so a lot of people have asked the question how this verse would appear 
in Moroni chapter 7. This is the very end of Moroni 7, verse 48. Wherefore, my beloved brethren, pray unto the Father with all the energy of heart that ye may be filled with this love which he hath bestowed upon all who are true followers of his Son, Jesus Christ, that ye may become the sons of God, that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is, that we may have this hope, that we may be purified even as he is pure. Amen. So that you, you may have read these, this verse your whole life thinking Moroni came up with this, but Moroni is directly quoting, this is, in my opinion, again, this is something that's undeniable. Moroni is directly quoting First John. So this is ammunition in the quiver of those who want to discredit Joseph Smith because they say it's impossible for Moroni to have received in any normal way the, the first epistle of John. It was written across the world etc., right? Now, remember, Moroni lived three or four hundred years after this epistle would have been written. Uh, And I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this. We'll talk about this when we talk about the Book of Mormon verse. So it's not the time. We're talking about 1 John now, not Moroni chapter 7. But uh, I want to point you to Ether chapter 4, verse 16. So in Ether 4, 16, uh, Moroni says this, then it got, he's describing what God said to him, and he says, Then shall my revelations, which I have caused to be written by my servant John, be unfolded in the eyes of all the people. Remember, when you see these things, you shall know that the time is at hand, that they shall be made manifest in very deed. So God has told, this is proof that God has told Moroni about his servant John. And if you remember, Nephi wrote about John as well. And... Uh, and the, the apostles that, the Nephite apostles that survived Jesus and were translated are also written about as having appeared later on to, to the prophets Mormon and Moroni. So uh, we already know that they were receiving visitations of translated beings, and therefore it doesn't seem, and, and we also know that the Latter-day Saint belief is that John was translated in the same way that these three Nephite disciples were translated. So that's one quick um, explanation there, and in order to believe it, you have to believe that uh, that Moroni's claims are true. It's, it doesn't help that, that Moroni's claims are true about these disciples being translated. It doesn't help someone who doesn't already believe in the Book of Mormon. It's not a very convincing argument, because what they look at is they see Moroni chapter 7, verse 48, and they think that is obviously a direct quote of John uh, of 1 John. And it, that's absolutely true. First um, John chapter 3. It's, it's undeniable. So the question is, how could Moroni have received this, have received the revelations that are written down in First John chapter 3? The answer is he could have, because they both were prophets, and they both believed in the same God, and they both were disciples of the same Jesus Christ. Uh, it just is unlikely, and therefore it makes it a little more difficult for people to accept. And I think it behooves us as Latter-day Saints to be aware of these things, when uh, these, these concepts that might be stumbling blocks to some. Uh, it, it helps us to be aware of them, and it also helps us to know that even though we have an explanation for it, that explanation is not proof. It's just a rationalization of why it might be true. And so, really, the greatest evidence for the Book of Mormon and for belief in Christ in general is the Holy Ghost, and that will always be the case. There will always be a question like this that comes up, 
and the best evidence to overcome it will always be the Holy Ghost. Uh, let's go back to, so now we're returning to 1 John chapter 3. Jesus says in verse 13, Marvel not if the world hate you. Again, he's returning to uh, the ideas that he's already expressed in John chapter 15. That great discourse about how he is the vine and we are the branches. Uh, in verse 23, he says this, you'll recognize these words. This is his commandment that we should believe on the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as he gave us commandment. And he that keepeth his commandments dwelleth in him, and he in him. And hereby we know that he abideth in us by the spirit which he hath given us. So if you remember, Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. And this is another way of saying that same thing. Um, I'll draw attention to a couple more verses here. One is, now we'll move on to 1 John chapter 4. Um, we'll start in verse 10. Herein is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to, to be the propitiation for our sins. So in uh, John chapter 15, Jesus says, you didn't choose me, but I chose you and sent you forth, right? Uh, and so Jesus was saying there, it's not your favor that matters, but it's the choice of God and it's my favor that really made the difference in your lives. This is the same idea here in verse 10. Uh, and let's, so anyway, we can read we can read all these verses. We can find tons of repeated concepts that first appeared or that we first read in the Gospel of John chapters 13 through 17. Uh, it's just fun to read those and compare. And basically John is, in my opinion, that's why I think that the epistle came first, because if they'd already had the Gospel, he, would, he wouldn't have had to remind him them of all these things. I think he was saying, uh, I mean, this is what I imagine his internal dialogue to be. He was saying, you know, I've been thinking about my time with Jesus and especially his last days with us. There are a lot of concepts that he really tried to hit home with us, and I'm going to expose you to them um, in a general way. And then later on, he was thinking, you know, it was really important what I wrote in my first epistle. In fact, I think I need to let everyone know that these ideas originally came from Jesus and under what context they came from Jesus so that they can feel like they're as important as I do. So that's kind of my imagination, how this, how this shook, shook out, is John was giving everyone a first exposure to those ideas here in this epistle. And then later on, he realized, I actually just need to let these words flow from Jesus. And the only way to do that is to write a biography of Jesus. And the way he did that, uh, I mean, go back and, and listen to um, some of the, the uh, uh, episodes of the podcast where we were discussing only uniquely the chapters in John. And you'll see, we, I, I did I, what I think is uh, a pretty in-depth job of analyzing the structure of the Gospel of John. So John, I, I would imagine that he took years to write that, that Gospel. And so this seems to, feels to me a little bit more like a rough draft rather than the finished product. So now we're in John, uh, let's go forward to 1 John chapter 5. Now you remember in John chapter 3 he says, uh, if you're not baptized, if you're not born of water and of the Spirit, then you can't enter into the kingdom of God. So I'm going to read you here. That's from John 3, right? He, he talks about uh, being born of water and of the, water and blood and the Spirit. I'm going to read here verses 6 through 8 of 1 John chapter 5. This is he that came 
by water and blood, even Jesus Christ, not by water only, but by water and blood. And it is the Spirit that beareth witness, because the Spirit is truth. For there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost. And these three are one. Incidentally, this is one of the most uh, important justifications for the modern doctrine of the Trinity, right here in 1 John. That was verse 7, now here's verse 8. And there are three that bear witness in earth, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree in one. So there's a parallel. John is drawing a parallel between the Spirit, the water, and the blood, and the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. And he's, he's basically saying that in the same way that they govern the heavens, these three govern the earth. This is how God makes himself visible in the earth, is through water, blood, and the Spirit. Uh, it's an interesting set of, it's an interesting parallel to think about. Um, now, the water and the blood, what does that mean? I mean, we've talked about what water might mean. It could mean the water of baptism. It could mean the water, uh, we, we think of it, John would not have thought of it this way, but we think of it as the water of the sacrament as well. But John would have used wine for that ordinance. And the wine is a symbol of the blood because the wine is red. So the water is the water of baptism, and it's also the water of purification that we discussed recently. Uh, mentioned in Ezekiel chapter 36, I will sprinkle many nations, meaning I will sprinkle the water of purification, the water of separation on them. This is a water that a priest would have sprinkled on people to make them ritually pure to enter the temple again. So that's the water, the water of baptism, the water of sprinkling, and the water, incidentally, that the children of Israel passed through out of their way at on their way out of Egypt. Uh, that was a spiritual baptism for them. So that's the water. The blood is the blood of Christ that we symbolize when we drink the sacrament. Uh, the, the, the blood of Christ that he shed on the cross and the blood that he also shed in the Garden of Gethsemane. This is his, uh, his propitiation, as John calls it, for our sins. And the Spirit, the Spirit that came on the day of Pentecosts and enlivened the people that, that actually sanctified them and made them holy while in this life. Those are the three main influences that we have from God in our life, and they symbolize the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost. That's a powerful idea, and uh, I think I think if you're going to ponder anything from this lesson, it should be that parallel and, and just sort of try to discover what it would mean in your life. Um, and finally, to, f to finish the book of 1 John, I just want to... Um, just want to read a couple of verses uh, here in chapter 5, verses 14 and 15. This is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he heareth us. And if we know that he hear us, whatever, whatsoever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we desire of him. So Jesus said so many times in his gospel, ask and ye shall receive. And this is John saying, Jesus has told us, ask and ye shall receive. So John is echoing the words of Jesus, this, this entire epistle is his attempt to echo the words of Jesus and say the, the, the way around corrupt influences of corrupt church leaders in this life is going back to basics and understanding the influence of the Holy Ghost that we've had throughout our lives and the teachings and the words of Jesus that he gave us when he was alive. So in other words, we listen to the scriptures and we listen to the Holy Ghost when, there, when something comes between us and God. Uh, you know, and and they dealt with corrupt leaders. I hope they dealt with corrupt leaders a lot more than we do today. But if you watch the news, I mean, these things are quite notable when you see a church leader who has been found out in some sort of uh, illicit practice, for example. It does happen. 
And uh, it's especially newsworthy in Utah where I live because uh, the church is so prominent here. And so then when a bishop or a stake president is found guilty of some wrongdoing, it makes the news and it, and it, you, you wonder what, what has that person's congregation, what have they suffered because they didn't have a leader who was led by the Holy Ghost for the past however many years or however many months. So these things are still happening today, even though we are assured by modern prophets that they don't go all the way to the top and that, and that corruption will never again take the, take the truth from the earth. We do also know that occasionally we do have to deal with the apostasy of others and with corrupt leaders, with wolves in sheep's clothing, as Jesus called them. Jude, now we go to the, the epistle of Jude, and that was a very short epistle, but very powerful. And Jude was concerned with the same idea. And as I mentioned, Jude is actually uh, the name Judah from the Old Testament. It's the same name. There were two Judes in the, among the apostles at the time of Jesus uh, or Judas's, as, as it's known in Greek. Um, Jude, Judas Iscariot and the other Judas. A lot of people think that this other apostle, Judas, uh, is the apostle Jude. So one, one option is that it's the second Jude among the original 12. And the other is, is that it's the half-brother of Jesus who was converted after Jesus's resurrection. So either way, we don't know much about either figure, and so it doesn't matter a, a whole ton which it is. But it's likely that this epistle was written to a community of what Paul would have called those of the circumcision. So in other words, Messianic Jews. And he was warning them about uh, their corrupt leaders. So the, the warning that he was giving was not you have to resist their teaching, right? It's not that they were smart enough to pervert the gospel and convert people to a new evil idea. It was mostly that they said one thing and did another. So really, it's their example that is, that is the terrible thing and that leads people astray. And it's their hypocrisy that tends to destroy the faith of others. And this hypocrisy is generally, as, he, as Jude teaches, about the, uh, in and around the concepts of how to deal with money and how to deal with sex. And so that this epistle is still very timely. These ideas are still very much important. And Jude says, and, and, he, and he points later to the, to the words of Peter, Paul and John to say that the appearance of these people, these false teachers, it's no surprise. It, we've known about it since the time of Jesus. So Jude is very, uh, his teachings are very steeped in the ideas of the Old Testament. And he brings in a couple of texts that you wouldn't have heard of if you hadn't already studied this or if you didn't know much about what's called the, the Apocrypha or the Deuterocanon, the second canon. Uh, the extra-biblical writings, they, these were very important cultural writings, and they were part of the same tradition that gave rise to the Hebrew Scriptures, even though they probably weren't canonized, even in uh, New Testament times. They probably weren't part of the Scriptures. But as you and I read, uh, I have a lot of friends who have read books, for example, called the, uh, I can't remember the name of them now, but, but you'll know what I'm talking about if you've ever read them. It's a seven-part series that talks about the... Uh, the life of Joseph Smith, right? So these are part of the same tradition, but they're not considered scripture. Um, the Spirit of God, like a fire is burning, you know, this, this, uh, this series of biographies of Joseph Smith and history of the church, but it's novelized and it's dramatized. Uh, that's sort of an example of, the, it's a shared experience among Latter-day Saints, especially maybe 20 years ago when these books came out. 
Um, and it was a cultural experience that they all shared, and it was something that came out of the Latter-day Saint tradition, even though these books were never canonized, right? But it, it was something that they all could have, if you had made a, it was part of their pop culture, you might even say. Well, Jude makes reference to uh, a few of these uh, same types of things when he talks about the book of First Enoch, for example. Now, though, there are those who believe that this was a spiritual work or even a scriptural work at that time. Uh, the Testament of Moses is another example, and you can look up what these books mean, but uh, the book of Enoch is uh, purportedly a revelation to Enoch, and it's not the same as the book of Enoch that's in the Pearl of Great Price. It's actually called the First Book of Enoch, or First Enoch. Um, and the Testament of Moses is a story about how the body of Moses is... is Moses has died wherever he died, and uh, you remember that God took the body of Moses from the book of Genesis. We don't know what happened to it. We, as Latter-day Saints, believe that Moses was translated. But the Testament of Moses is a story about an angel defending the soul of Moses to the spirit of the, uh, the enemy, the adversary, or the spirit of Satan. And when he comes to, to besmirch the name of Moses, then that's what the Testament of Moses is about. It's almost like a description of Moses' judgment before the judgment of God. So, uh, that's what the Testament of Moses is, and that's what the book of First Enoch is. And among the, the works that, Judas, that Jude cites are those, those two works. So the, there are a couple of three-part examples that Jude gives here. First is rebellion against, and, they, and they are, they're illustrating different concepts. The first concept is that rebellion against God is going to lead to sexual immorality. So the first example of this is the, the rebellion of the Israelites in the wilderness. Moses is up in the mount, and this is in Numbers chapter 14. Moses is up in the mount, and he comes down and finds everybody involved in a big hedonistic party. Um, the second one is from Genesis chapter 6, and it's also from the book of First Enoch, which is the, the idea that there were angels, or what they're called in the Old Testament, they're called the sons of God. They rebelled. Uh, against God, and they they lay with or had sex with uh, earthly women. Uh, it's not exactly clear who these sons of God were. M mainstream Christians tend to believe that these were fallen angels who came to earth, and they. Or, but they're also called giants. Um, it's you can you can actually read a few of the teachings of Joseph Smith about uh, who this might have been, but I don't know that it's that important. The, Suffice it to say, there was an ancient tradition of people who had a high... Uh, the, the teachings of the Latter-day Saints are generally that these were children of the covenant, right? And that they went outside and married outside of the covenant, and therefore their children didn't have the benefit of the covenants of the gospel. So it could be that simple, but a lot of people, a lot of Christians today see a supernatural element in what's going on here. In any case, Jude is making the point that the, uh, there was an ancient betrayal of covenants of God, and it led to sexual immorality. And third, the men of Sodom. Now, you remember the story of, of Sodom where there were, um, Lot was a righteous man living in the city of Sodom, and this was a, this was a civilization where homosexuality was very much uh, not only accepted, but it was pushed on people. And the, uh, this people of the city of Sodom, they pushed Lot to send out his holy messengers, two angels from his house, so that the men of Sodom could abuse them. And so that this is, and they were judged for that. And so therefore, uh, there are three examples here of the sexual immorality and how it was punished in Old Testament times. And the, 
then the testament of Moses comes where, where this angel is defending the memory of Moses. So the lesson is that God will defend those who are loyal to him. So there are three examples that show that, that corruption and that breaking of covenants leads to, leads to sexual immorality. And then there's the flip side, that God will defend those who are loyal to him. Then there's another three-part example. And the three-part example at this time is that religious leaders, rebellious leaders, uh, generally they, they're not content with just rebelling themselves. They will take others along with them. So the first example there is Cain from Genesis chapter 4. You remember Cain went on to build an entire civilization. His, all of his posterity followed him in his wickedness. And then uh, the second example is Balaam. You might remember that Balaam was the prophet. He was called upon by a wicked king to curse the people of children of Israel, but he couldn't do it because he had to. He only could give the words that God had given him, and so Balaam uh, refuses to curse the children of Israel. But he does say. Finally, he says, "You know what? Uh, if you want to get them, if you want to defeat them in battle, you just have to get them to sin." And so Balaam was the cause of great corruption. He taught another civilization how to corrupt the Israelites. The final example given here is Korah. And that's, this is, oh, I'm sorry, Balaam is from Numbers chapter 22 through 25, and again in Numbers 31. So his righteousness is exposed in Numbers 22 through 25, and then his wickedness in, in Numbers 31. And then Korah is this, um, this false prophet that actually put himself up in the place of Moses from Numbers chapter 16. So uh, Korah, God actually intervened in this rebellion. He intervened militarily and Three, I can't remember, I didn't read the story for, the, for this lesson, but I, I seem to remember the number given was 300,000 Israelites were struck dead when they followed Korah against Moses. So the, 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 the point that Judah makes is, number one, rebellion against God leads to sexual immorality, and he gives three examples about that. And number two, rebellious leaders, when they rebel, when they want to live uh, a lifestyle that is in uh, opposition to God's teachings. They generally take other people with them. And then he, then Jude gives more examples f- from the Old Testament. that it, This is one that is important to Latter-day Saints, the shepherds. When God says, I'm against the shepherds who have not taken care of the flock from Ezekiel chapter 34. So one of the examples is the selfish shepherds. Uh, Proverbs 25, you might read that, and there are clouds that look like rain clouds, but then don't actually provide the nourishing rain to the ground. And then the chaotic waves from Isaiah, that was from Proverbs 25 and then Isaiah 57, these chaotic waves that, that destroy. So he gives more examples from the scriptures of how we can, uh, number one, why we should resist corrupt leaders, right? So, so far, Judah, uh, Jude is talking about why we would resist corrupt leaders. And he quotes warnings first from First Enoch, and uh, which is interesting because First Enoch, in turn, quotes three places in the Old Testament: Deuteronomy chapter thirty-three, Zechariah chapter fourteen, Isaiah chapter sixty-six. And these are these are prophecies about the great and terrible day of the Lord. The point that that Jude is trying to make in this quote is that we really all will have to face judgment one day. That God's judgment is real. So this this is an ancient he. He appeals to an ancient authority, and then he appeals to modern authority. What is for him modern authority? And uh, he, he quotes from Second Peter he, uh, chapter two. He quotes from First John chapter four. He quotes from Second Timothy chapter three. He quotes Peter, John, and Paul. And uh, ultimately, those three again are quoting. So this is the second level quote, just like before. 
they're quoting Matthew chapter 7 when Jesus, is, when Jesus says, you'll have false teachers arise among you and they'll distort my teachings. So Jude ends up talking about why we would combat this. So, or I'm sorry, how we would combat this. So the rest of this, the first part of this epistle is why we would combat these corrupt teachers, why it's so important. And he appeals to all of these writings and scriptures to teach us why and then how to combat. Basically, we have to build a temple. The temple of God is us. We are God's new temple, and, through, and it's through prayer, it's through the love of God, and constant vigilance. Those are the three ways. And then finally, God will help. God is the one who is going to actually make it all possible. So most of this epistle is a teaching about why we would oppose God's enemies. And finally, the, the last little bit is about how. So again, that how is through prayer, through the love of God, and through constant vigilance. And it's all of those three things, our efforts are, are stamped with God's approval and his enabling power is what makes it all possible. So uh, the main idea of the, the epistle of Jude is that if you love God, you're going to obey his teachings. And the converse of that is it's easy to identify somebody who doesn't love God. When you see them outside of God's teachings, they're disobeying Christ, then you know that that their teachings aren't actually... that that they are a false leader. They are these wolves in sheep's, sheep's clothing. They're the corrupt uh, leaders that Jesus identified and that, that have been identified by prophets, both ancient and modern. So it's a powerful warning to all of us that we need to look at what people do and not, what, what, and not at what they say, and that God's judgment eventually will come to all of us, but that if we love God, if we pray with faith, and if we constantly watch for him and, and look for the evidences of him, his interventions and his enabling power in our lives, that we will be able to build ourselves into a temple and that God will eventually help us all and give his stamp of approval and make the difference in all of our efforts so that we go from suffering under the ministrations of corrupt leaders to a state where we build ourselves into a temple, which is a shared space between God and man. We turn ourselves into a dwelling place of holiness. And that's the powerful message of uh, the epistles of John and the epistle of Jude. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. This has been Gospel Doctrine, a nonprofit podcast hosted and produced by Mark Holt with bumper music by Kendra Lowe. Gospel Doctrine is not affiliated with nor endorsed by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints.